Um, so you are part of a more liberal strain of Judaism. Can you talk about women in ministry and just women's place in Judaism? Yeah, so women have not been ordained in Judaism for very long. Uh, there were no uh, female rabbis until, what, little more than 50 years ago. So the first uh, brand of Judaism to ordain women is Reform Judaism. And I can't give you the year. I, I think it's in the 1960s, but I'm not sure. And... <clears throat> uh, and of course, just because they were ordaining women doesn't mean those women were being hired. There were still barriers yep. there. Um, Reconstructionist Judaism, my memory is, I'm pretty sure, from its beginning, the seminary, which is located in Philadelphia, has ordained men and women from the start, but Reconstructionist Judaism is a young movement. And mm -hmm. I think the seminary is only founded in the 1970s, so it's not a great claim to, you know, um, fame. The big issue was when conservative Judaism starts to ordain women. This is, this is a huge debate. Um, it goes on. It's resolved in around the mid... It's in the... I'm sure it's in the mid-1980s. I want to mm -hmm. say 85. I'm not sure the exact year, but I know it's the mid-80s. And uh, they begin ordaining women. And there are very few women going. And I'm at this point, I am a graduate student in religious studies at Columbia University. And Columbia University, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and Union Theological Semini Seminary are all next to each other on the Upper West Side of New York. So um, I'm entering my program in religious studies at Columbia University, and the person assigned, we had to take examinations in all world religions, no, no matter what your particular field was. Right. Um, at least major religions. So the guy who's going to teach us Judaism, the main professor of Judaic studies, whose name is David Weiss Halivni, um, has been hired, is, is a professor at Columbia University, but he's only been there a few years because he left the Jewish Theological Seminary over their decision to ordain women. This is my going to be my professor. Oh. Jewish studies at Columbia. Um, to make a long story short, after I get to know him a bit, I ask him one day in an appointment, point blank in his office, why did you oppose the ordination of women and did you really leave the seminary over that issue? And he says, I am not, um, something like uh, by virtue of fact or something like as a given opposed to the ordination of women. I was opposed, this goes back to uh, the comments about Rabbi um, um, Booth Nadav over the kosher kitchen. He said, what I was opposed to was we did not follow the process of oral Torah. Oh. Rather, we caved to political pressure that the Protestants do it now. So we should do it now. Oh. In other words, modern debates 
uh, within feminism and equity and all those kinds of things were the arguments being brought to bear. And he thought these were not arguments internal to the, the sort of theology and the ethos of Judaism. So he, he said, so I do want you to know that in principle, I am not opposed to the ordination of women. And, um, I don't want to say we became good friends cause you don't, he was this great, great scholar, but he treated me certainly with as much respect, if not more so than any male student in the class. I met, he, he was so generous with his time that I had no problem working with him at all. So that was a, a, very interesting thing. I'm forgetting now what the question was. It wasn't so about you, the ordination well, of women. So do you, well, do you think then that in your tradition, which I'm forgetting, reconstructionist, reconstruction, reconstruction, do you think that their decision to ordain women has come out of an oral practice of Torah or is it more of been a reply to social? Well, so reconstructionist Judaism sees itself, its founder as an, and Rabbi Booth Nadav would know a lot about this. Um, uh, in this particular Jewish theologian named Mordechai Kaplan, and Mordechai Kaplan, if I'm remembering right, so he's he's a professor at the Jewish theological, the conservative. It's either it's either his daughter or the daughter of Abraham Joshua Heschel that's the first has the first daughter to be bat mitzvahed, which oh. is a real deviation oh. from what's been practiced. So, so Mordechai Kaplan writes this long, kind of amazing book. If you ever want to read a kind of theological reflection on modern Judaism um, and how to make it both modern and traditional at the same time, it's this book by Mordechai Kaplan called Judaism as a Civilization. Just to warn you, it's a tome. It's a tome. Um, but I don't. I haven't studied the book well enough to know if he makes the case. But he's very much interested in the way Judaism has always been an evolution because of oral Torah. So there's mm -hmm. nothing. Mordechai Kaplan was worried a lot that. Judaism was going to disappear once the scientific worldview we were all living in was it was taking hold. Why should Took people over. believe in this God of ancient Israel? It's nuts. I mean, nobody believes in that anymore. So he basically argued that Judaism has always been more than just these literal kinds of particular beliefs. It's a it's it's an it's a, it's a peoplehood that has a common memory and a common story and a common and a civilization. So, and that is a grotesque oversimplification of his theological argument, but it, essentially in there, I'm pretty sure that they ordain women from the beginning of the opening of the seminary. So yeah. next time you meet yeah. Rabbi Booth Nadav, next time you see him, he would, he, he is, He's a guy who quotes Mordechai Kaplan to me all the time. Um, and he always quoted it to us. And by the way, here's one of my favorite uh, quotes from Mordechai Kaplan, um, which was a favorite of Rabbi Steve's. He, um, he said, the past um, always has a vote 
but doesn't have a veto, meaning that every time you make a decision about Jewish practice and what you're going to do, it's your obligation to consult the past. But it, whatever was done in the past doesn't get to be the veto, the last say on what you do in the future, um, which I think captures Reconstructionist Judaism pretty well. Can you share a little bit about your own personal journey as a woman scholar in Judaism? What was that like for you? And how do you feel that you're accepted, how do you feel that you're accepted in the field as a woman? Um, well, first I want to say, I feel lucky, blessed, whatever the right word is, is in that in my family and in most of my early contacts, I never knew that opportunity was less for me than for men. It's like somehow I missed, and I think that's just a blessing. Having said yeah. that, the one exception where I feel like this is totally unfair was at my bat mitzvah. So in a conservative synagogue, you could be bat mitzvahed. It's still relatively new. Uh, you could be bat mitzvahed, but you couldn't, a woman, a girl, couldn't read from the Torah because they might be menstruating and causing purity and they can't touch the Torah. They didn't give me that reason. It's only yeah. later as a graduate student I learned, figure that out. But girls are not allowed to read from the Torah. You can have a bat mitzvah, but you have to read from haftorah, from a book. So this would be from any of the prophetic literature or whatever. So, and you cannot be in the main sanctuary because the ark is in the main sanctuary and the Torah is in the ark and you can't be in a certain proximity to it. So I was like other girls. So this wasn't like singling me out. All girls are bat mitzvah in the chapel and we were in the chapel. And even at, so at 13 already, I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. This is totally unfair. Um, and also, I was like the only kid who was into religious school. Like, I liked going to religious school. I liked learning Hebrew. I liked all these things. And I'm like, I'm a way better student, you know, than Moshe <laughs> over here who doesn't give a crap. And he gets to learn to read from the Torah. And I don't. This is totally unfair. So... Uh, but I got over it. I moved on. You know, uh, I just moved on. And I think it's only until you begin to have experiences um, or you begin to listen to other women's experiences. So I was a master's student. My first graduate degree, I'm a master's student in 1983. It's my first year in Boston. Boston is a major kind of center of, I guess it would be considered the second wave of feminism. Mm -hmm. Mary Daly teaches there at Boston College. I'm a student at Harvard Divinity School, but I go to what was then called a consciousness raising meeting. I've never been to anything like this before. And I go to... <laughs> This is funny to me because my response is so out of sync with what happens at this meeting. So I go to this meeting, and the topic that night is that women don't speak in public. They don't ask questions in classrooms. They don't 
don't do all these things. And as someone who asks questions to an annoying degree, who like never had any <laughs> trouble speaking up in class, I'm thinking, this is not my problem. I don't know. I thought we were going to talk about equal pay or certain political. <laughs> like I'm thinking, this is not my problem. In fact, is this an imaginary problem? Like I, I just hadn't noticed. So I never went to any more, con I'm, you know, semi-embarrassed. I never went to any more meetings, actually. Um, but when I became a speaker, so now years later, I'm a speaker, and speaking in public more as I get more notice in the guild of academe and in the public, I notice that it's mostly men that ask questions. So they were right. It just wasn't my personal experience because... I'm lucky I grew up in a family that didn't ever make me feel different or uh, whatever the reason is. Yeah. Or I just talk too much. My problem is, I remember <laughs> saying to the group, my problem is learning when to shut up. I really don't have a problem with talking. That's you and me. Yeah. yeah. My mom said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I noticed that it's true. It's, it's, it is true. So I'm blessed that in academia, I could, from the beginning, um, if you and sometimes academia at conferences is a is a verbal wrestling match, and if there were mud, mud would be thrown. <laughs> um, I have no problem in that game, um, but other women do, and it could be it can be scary and intimidating, and you know, as my husband Mark George would say. My wife doesn't even know when she's been insulted. She just proceeds with the debate. <laughs> and I'm I'm just fortunate. It's that's just a personality thing. Yeah. But um I think now what's interesting here here's one other interesting little piece is when I come I get hired at ILF, coming to Denver is coming home for me because my family lives here. It's just by good fortune that Getting hired at ILF is also Denver is home. And the first time I'm on some kind of public, I'm very junior scholar, very junior. I mean, I'm nobody. I'm on a panel. I can't remember. It's some interfaith panel. And Rabbi Stephen Foster, who's the most prominent rabbi, he was the rabbi of Congregational, of Temple Emmanuel, mm -hmm. one of the best public speakers, the sermons. I sometimes went there just to hear him speak. He was, he was just really good and very smart. He's on the panel. I can't remember who the other people are. He speaks right before me. And he begins by saying this, I'm so glad I'm speaking before Pamela Eisenbaum because I get very nervous in front of academics that I don't know anything and I won't know. And I'm looking at him thinking, because I'm terrified that I have to speak after <laughs> Rabbi Foster, one of the most eloquent people I've ever heard speak. And as I look back on it, the fact that I was also a woman, that that didn't diminish his own fears. Yeah. He told me like Because later we're on several panels, I could see he got anxious I've, I've noticed this with, with other clergy people, too, that somehow I'll, like, stand up and correct him on something. I mean, I don't know what he thinks. But um, so I think I've just been fortunate. But, you know, I also the first time I was at a conference, 
conferences, I think business conferences are like this too, divided up into certain sections of areas of expertise. Yeah. And I went to a section on um, uh, basically the Dead Sea Scrolls. I was reading some text. And it was a small seminar. And when I walked in the room, there were no women in the room. I don't even notice <laughs> till I'm at the table. And that was one time where I actually became self-conscious of it. Another time I walk into a meeting, it's like a section on where speakers are talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. And I walk into the room and it's just packed. And I'm in there because a woman who's a mentor of mine, Tamara Eskenazi, is giving a talk. When I walk in, the, the, the room is completely full and so there's no room to sit down. And Tamara's at the front. She's just starting her talk. And the entire back row of men gets up to give me their seat. I mean, it's this, and, and I'm in this, you don't have to get, you know, I don't. And so we're having this argument. And Tamara, who knows me, is, is just motioning me like, just fucking sit down already so I can proceed with my... <laughs> talk so I take somebody's seat I mean they're all being gentlemen but but I started to think of sexism in other ways like what why do I just there are all these other men standing by the way why should I deserve a seat more than right anyone else so but my experience I think is unique and I think most women have had it a lot harder well but I want to thank you for sharing it and for mm -hmm. saying that because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times women that are blessed with that personality mm -hmm. trait think a lot of other women that are telling those stories aren't are just not yeah, being right. bold enough and not being brave enough and I appreciate that you say well that's just me yeah. but I know it's out there yeah and I think that's really important right. for for us to hear um that e when we do experience it and we do notice it that it, it is there mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I'm glad that your path has been easy a little yeah, a little just smoother lucky. just lucky yeah just lucky yeah so speaking of women in the Bible, are there any midrash on Esther, Deborah, I mean, Rebecca, Rachel, there's all kinds of amazing. Lilith. You've probably heard of yeah. Lilith. Yeah. I mean, Lots I would love to hear there. some. So, so going back, midrash is a commentary filling of the gaps of within the, within the text. It's a part of the oral Torah. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's talk about some commentary mm -hmm. here. I mean, specifically within, let's just make sure it's all female. So forget the men for a second. I'm just trying to transition well, but there's lots of midrash. But I want to hear some good female midrash. Anything on Jephthah's daughter? Oh God, yeah. There's a lot on any story that feels morally compromising becomes a focus. And of course, I'm not gonna. You guys are making me. I, I guess I should have pulled out my midrashim. No. Um, by, by the way, there's a handy way, if you want to know an easy way to look up, here's the secret. So um, Lewis Ginsburg, this famous Jewish scholar, oh, did I? Yeah, Legends of the Jews, and there's an index for it. So you can look up certain stories, and what he's done is create a compendium from Midrash from all these different sources that you'd have to go track down. You'd have to look up at each one individually without that. I didn't consult. I didn't super, know you were going to ask me about you know, Jephthah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's huge, right? It's huge. So it's pretty, actually, it's inexpensive on Kindle. Yeah. For those who are <laughs> oh, out there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's on Kindle right. now. Yeah. Right. You just can't uh, flip uh, the pages. <laughs> um, 
gosh, I wish I could remember, that does pr- prompt a lot of discussion about what constitutes an oath. Yeah. That also a lot of halakha about what constitutes an oath and when you're obligated, which mm-hmm. I, I just can't draw up from oh, memory. It's okay, I'm totally. afraid. I can't drop from memory. That's just one when you're trying to like study it from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. There there isn't a reason. Like why the why did he do that? Yeah. Really? So for those who don't have any idea what you're talking about, you're talking about the story. Yeah. So we might have our own midrash right here. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Jephthah was a military commander Mm -hmm. and God had told him about this battle that he was gonna be in and already told him that he was gonna win. But when he left to go to battle, he said, um, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that greets me at the door when I come home oh. if I win. Right. And when he came home, it was his daughter. Right. And then he gave her a period of time and then f- followed through on his oath. Yep. That's right. Though there's no record of how she was yes, killed or right. anything like that. So so the the questions become like, one, why why did he make that oath when he'd yeah, already been right. told he, he would didn't win? Need to, right. And did did he kill her? Um, because there's a lot of there's some commentary that maybe he didn't kill her, maybe he sent her somewhere yeah, or let her live right. with her with other young women or something, but give her it, a new identity. But yeah. The, yeah. But the real witness like, protection program. Yeah. Just why did he do it? And then what does this say? I mean, the very kind of sexist overtones, the patriarchal overtones yeah. of killing your your, your daughter. daughter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I, I cannot tell you. I do not know. I do not know. I do know that it sparks. Uh, so my memory is only vague about definitions of what should count as an oath. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there's stuff about. The, the dot. I'm sure there is because it's just too powerful a story. And also, in particularly in later midrashim, um, they often get into what we call almost psychoanalysis of individual characters really? of the Bible and why they behave as they do. Um, I'm only going to remember one off the top of my head, but there's so. So Abraham is Abraham, right? He's this great figure. I mean, he starts the Jewish people. He goes through all this stuff. He has, you know, all, all these, um, you know, he's, right. Circumcision is given to him as, as the covenant with God. And he, okay. So, and then Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes. And there's long stories about Jacob. Isaac, if you look in the Bible, doesn't accomplish very much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there is a story in which one rabbi asks, when you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, Isaac really, really didn't accomplish very much. I mean, he's not really very, I mean, if you think about it. It, it, took, it took so long not, to get to him, and then yeah, he's just like, what right, happened? I know, and you move exactly. on to Jacob. It's not, and the answer is this. Seriously, the answer is this. Well, as a young boy, his father tried to sacrifice him, and he was traumatized, and it's not his fault for not really achieving much later in life. Brilliant. <laughs> Probably true too. So he still gets credit. What he could have been, you know, is still out there. We should still credit him. So, but they, I know they do this with other characters um, about who they are. In fact, I mentioned Moses on Mount Sinai wasn't a very good um, student. student. <laughs> there are tons of stories about how stupid Moses is. 
like tons and like as if that and, didn't make and yet the point. there's nobody like moshe yeah that's None right like never him. has a prophet at the end of deuteronomy one never yeah. there'll never be a prophet like moses there's one where uh, you know part of the giving of the hope. law part of the giving of the law is is the instructions about how to build the tabernacle I don't know if you remember, yeah. and that's several chapters. Yep. Get this, and this has to be of gold, and these things will be in it. And <laughs> Moses is particularly confused at this part. And um, God even performs a little dem like engineering demonstration, <laughs> which Moses can't duplicate. You know, God says, do it this way. Now you try, and Moses can't do it. <laughs> and this is why he has to hire What's their name? Um, there, there are two craftsmen of the temple. I forgot their. I'm forgetting their names too. Too bad Mark isn't here. But the poor guy. There are so many stories about what you know. He's he almost do. mentally disabled in these stories. There's just one after another. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. Like how you can revere mm -hmm. that person. The way that, I mean, and but then they have these stories about that yeah. is so interesting. See, I wonder in apocryphal literature, uh, to, to moving shift back to Christianity, in apocryphal literature, um, oftentimes Jesus is presented in ways that are less than um, complimentary. Actually, he is for that matter in the canonical gospels in places, but there's one. In fact, on Thursday night, someone came up because I made an allusion to something, and, and um, one member of the audience was worried that I had said something that insulted Jesus, to which I said, no, no, I was just actually quoting something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is probably written in the third century, and that's where Jesus, it's about Jesus as a boy, mm -hmm. and he has superpowers that he can't control. I mean, it's it's a it's a graphic novel if ever there was one. He has, and so when he doesn't like so doesn't some of kill, his classmates, kill, kill, kill he kills them. He kills, kills them, and his teacher forces him to resurrect them. <laughs> I was thinking he killed a bird, but he killed a human. No, wow. no, he kills he kills a human. He's just that, an X man who hasn't yeah, figured exactly. out how to do right, things. Exactly, yet. he can't completely go. control his emotions, and he's very angry, so he ends up killing somebody. So, but I wonder. Those you could see those in so many different ways, but there's part of me in which maybe that's a midrash of trying to imagine the Son of God mm. endowed As with the human. power of resurrection at ten years old, yeah. <laughs> not understanding those so, so, abilities. Yeah, so Thomas is a Gnostic gospel later. What about like John? So is is John a bit of a? I don't want to say it's a, it's a full midrash, but it's. There's definitely a commentary. Parts of it, yes. You think yes. so? Yes. Parts of yeah. it are like it's not like, like the, the others. Mana, One is not so like John the others. So, so I think there are sections of John where there are dialogues. Jesus, you know, Jesus talks incessantly in the Gospel of John. But um, sorry, I mean, just if you look at it, he talks yes. way more in John it's than the in red any book. other. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I has, hadn't thought right. about and that. It looks it's nothing like the other three. Text. Yeah. That's. I mean, he goes on and on. The speeches are very long. Uh, but so there's the dialogue. Um, so now I have had some tequila. I think it's it's with Nicholas. Do I have the name right? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, where they're talking about being born again and what that means and whatnot. And 
Jesus appeals to certain kinds of scripture. And then in, in John 6, um, there's the business about what bread is really the bread of mm-hmm. life, and he appeals to stories in Exodus about mana and interprets them in light of that. So there are lots of places, and some would argue that John 1, in the beginning, was the word. Um, it Certainly the words in the beginning are an exact replication of the first words of Genesis 1. So I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, right. it's imitating Genesis 1. It's meant to evoke creation and to evoke the idea of Jesus as the Word being with God at creation. Could that also That's be a midrash. reference to I mean, Torah? I could see how we could call that mid. Yes. And actually, for someone like Philo, uh, I think I mentioned, so there's this Jewish philosopher who lives almost exactly the same time as Jesus, who wrote about halogos, the logos, like a lot like the Gospel of John writes oh. about it, that the Logos is sort of God's mind and God's teachings externalized in the word of Torah. Um, because there needs to be some sort of bridge between this immaterial, otherworldly God and humans. Right. And Philo doesn't have any idea, he's a Jew, doesn't have any idea of Jesus. You know, he lives exactly at the time, sort of at the birth of Christianity, but he lives in Alexandria, Egypt. There are no followers of Jesus there in his time. But he himself comes up with this idea of the look, the, there has to be an intermediary. And I don't remember if I said on Thursday, but I said it to my, my online class recently. I did a little video, a, a Zoom meeting with them. Yeah. Um, and I said to them, Someday I'm going to write a book called Where Did God Go? And by that I meant that God is a major figure in the Hebrew Bible. He speaks to people. He walks with people. He shows up all the time. I mean, so it's not just that people are talking about God, but God is there. And God speaks through the prophets. If you think about it in the New Testament, God is, with the exception of the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration, in which God says exactly the same thing, basically, um, God never speaks. And no, I mean, unless you, you see Jesus as a stand-in for God, in a literal sense, God isn't there. And I think, not just for Christians, but for Jews in general, for reasons I don't completely know, in that in that late Hellenistic, early Roman period, Jews of that time have the sense that God is farther away than they used to have. And I think it's an interesting question of why. God is just not showing up to talk to people all the time. Just not. And so this idea of the logos... Mm-hmm. And in Christianity, more and more that God has to become incarnate in a human being and, and live on the earth and, and teach people and make a sacrifice and then go back is the only way people can have contact again with God. It's almost like creation digresses farther and farther away from God. But I'd like to know the history. I think, I think there are probably cultural and historical reasons why people begin to start to feel that way. Are there any charismatic Jews that believe in a spiritual 
encounter or interaction with God. So the way Christians get around this, Jesus leaves and God is gone and Jesus is gone, but the Holy Spirit is still That's there. Right. right. So they speak in tongues. And then after the New Testament, that kind of, it pops up every once in a while, but pretty much fades out of existence until about 1908 mm-hmm. when it shows up again in America and now has become this force that yeah. may be so. the next iteration of Christianity. Yeah. And so do Jews have any interaction with anything like question. that? Because so, there are Catholics that have become charismatic and speak yeah, in tongues. Right. So, so there's always this, this shadow strain of Judaism known as mystical Judaism, which again, if you have Rabbi Booth Nadav here, would know more about. I'm not, just personally speaking, I'm never a person attractive to, to, spirit, to mystical kinds of things because they get weird and I never understand them. <laughs> Um, I really, when my students go on and on, the, the thing today, right, is to say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And one day in class, I just said, you know, the more I hear this, the more I realize I'm religious and not spiritual. I just don't, I just, I believe, and and I think a lot of, frankly, I think a lot of Jews are like me. You, you go Christians through certain too. rituals and you do them whether or not you feel like doing them or whether or not they've resulted in some mm-hmm. profound mystical experience. So I think, so there are, and there are lots of stories about mystics kind of conjuring a semi-divine being to make contact with God. So there's this idea of a golem that you can, because a human being is made in the image of likeness of God, that a human being technically has the ability to create ex nihilo to create out of nothing. nothing and that you can create a kind of being that's like a golem so there's even an x-files show on this by the way um but i think that what what happens is there are revivals in judaism a bit like christianity and so when you see hasids hasidic so, so these are very orthodox jews who wear the traditional dress yeah. right the black hat and the black dress that largely that's the dress of 18th century poland basically and 18th century poland poland is the era of the balshem tov and the balshem tov sort of initiates um the balshem tov is a reform movement in which people in which he says you know people have begun to study torah too much it, it's it's rote they don't, the, the Torah is the gift alive. of God. It's, it's alive. It's meant to be joy. We should be dancing with the Torah. We should do all these exuberant things. And so it was kind it of is charismatic. charismatic. And then it solidifies in what we know today as Orthodox Judaism. And so it's a bit, I, it's, it's a bit ironic that it begins as this kind of charismatic reform movement that's very much Torah-centered and not at all telling people to, you know, stop doing certain kinds of things, but to do things of, out of exuberance and out of control and out of, and and so, but it gets institutionalized and and it just gets tamed. Um, so there are, 
there are also false messiahs in the medieval period where people get, yes, there's the most famous one is named Sabbatai Zvi. And he gets a following of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, and then he converts to Islam. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah, wah, wah, right. So then there's like, whoops, I guess he's not the messiah. But, but he drums up all this, I mean, people follow, they, they leave their hometowns to follow him. I mean, wow. so, so there are these, these movements of exuberance that, that would be analogous to sort of charismatic kinds of things. And I would say, for a time, I attended a Reconstructionist congregation in New York City that I described to others, like, if there were such a thing as Pentecostal Judaism, I think this would be it. Um, and I loved it, actually, because there was dancing with the Torah. So when the Torah was bought, brought out from the ark, often the tradition is that when the Torah comes out of the ark, the person carrying the Torah uh, wanders through the congregation so you can kiss the Torah and you treat it all these ways. Well, people just start dancing in the aisles around. The, they, they don't just like gently express their reverence for the Torah. They're like dancing like crazy people. And, and being the rationalist that I am, I never thought I would have been caught up in it, but I was totally caught up in it. <laughs> and I really, really enjoyed it, actually. Um, you know, so there are these, so there are instances of it. And I think um, Rabbi Booth Nadav, who has very mystical leanings, and also the Jewish renewal movement in Boulder, has mystical kinds of tendencies. So I think it's always there. And rabbinic Judaism tends to just, anything that verges on, that looks like it, it's too, um, what do I want to say? Borders on almost like magic or uh -huh. borders on that is either dangerous or they're just crazy people and you should stay away from them. Yeah. So, so sort of mainstream Judaism just just pushes it aside as anomalous. Interesting. You had, you had said at the pub that the synagogue is busier during the week than it is on yeah, Saturday. Yes. So can you explain what that looks like? Because I love that as somebody who has a beef with people who own property and it's only occupied on Sunday in an occasional Wednesday prayer group or youth ministry. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Christianity, by the right. way, <laughs> uh, uh, just to clarify, but I, I love the fact that it's busier during the week than it yeah, is on it Saturday. Is. Yeah. How? Well, because education, um, is the most important thing or other, or the library committee, what books are we going to buy for our library? So it's a good, uh, so I think there are several reasons for this. One is some Jews, as Heather mentioned before, might belong to the synagogue because they're parents and they want their kids to get an education, but they're not going to show up on Saturdays anyway. I'm sure there's lots of Christian churches like this too. Um, but others, but there's lots of activity. So uh, my nephew, uh, when he was studying for his bar mitzvah, kind of came late to the party because his father, my brother, wasn't terribly into it, and then suddenly decided, I want the kids to be bar mitzvah, and they're, you know, five years behind where the other kids are. So I commit to doing Hebrew tutoring, um, and I say, let's just meet at the synagogue. And 
Wednesday nights at the synagogue was just to find a room was, you know, complicated. I mean, it was just busy. So, so I think, um, education is a big part of just what's so more of our building is devoted to classrooms, uh, the library and learning space than to the sanctuary. And I, I'd say that's true of many other synagogues, unless they've grown very, very big in a congregation where they really need big, big worship space. So the, the synagogue, and by the way, the synagogue just, you know, just means an assembly place, just means a place where people congregate. So, so education of Jewish young people is just a huge priority of the Jewish synagogue. And often that that's just memorizing the Shema. I mean, it's just, not even really deep education is just that kind of stuff. So, so it's, it's, and various committees meet and whatnot. I belong to a Havara. So, so the reason my synagogue is called B'nai Havara, which literally would translate, and I never thought about this before now, but literally it would translate like the children of the f fellowship groups which sounds really bad. But initially, my synagogue wasn't a synagogue. It was just groups of people who wanted to meet together, maybe not altogether different than brew, um, brew theology, only it wasn't organized around beer. Um, but <laughs> most of the people belonged to other local synagogues in Denver, but they wanted some space to talk about deeper things. So they form Havaraz like a fellowship group, and, and usually it's not more than 12 to 20 people often with their families, and they became close. So it was like a league of Havarot, of, of, of Havaraz. And eventually, over time, people began to say, you know, this is a lot more satisfying to us than the synagogues we belong to. Maybe we should become a synagogue. And then even after they become a synagogue for a while, they don't want a rabbi. They want to run the space themselves, and then eventually they do hire a rabbi. I think uh, Rabbi Steve um, Booth Nadab was maybe the second, only the second rabbi they hired. So, so I belong to Havara, and I'm a faithful attender to my Havara in a way I'm not to Shabbat services. I say that as something of a confession now because I'm even feeling guilty about it because, but. I feel connected to my synagogue and to my community by virtue of my Havara, because often we talk about news and various things. And on certain festivals and whatnot, I'm going to the to the to the synagogue for those. So but I think just certain I don't know what to say. Um I I don't mean to undervalue attendance at Shabbat services, but it is just one piece of def yeah. defining your yeah. Jewish identity. It, it, yeah. It's just a piece rather than the whole thing. Yeah, Whereas I right. think, especially in the time period where Ryan and I were growing up, attendance was really, really important. You need to be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and maybe another night. Oh, really? And you better not That's miss, right. and school's not an excuse, and sports aren't an excuse. Like, you need to be there if you're claiming to be a Christian. 
And, and it wasn't until probably hindsight as a youth pastor where I look back and I see that my small groups that I had organized and kind of, you know, allowed these groups to exist in different kinds of places across the city, uh, the value of like the small group leaders and the people within those groups, it meant more to those teenagers in those groups than it did to come to a service on Sunday. Yeah. Um, you know, I look back because I'm, I'm always like, yeah, come back on Sunday, come back. And because you had to, you had you had to say that it's like the rah rah cheer, but like really their community was with their small group leaders. Yeah, when they would dive into the text and talk about it and what that looks like on their in their own life. So yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's the big and small, right? It's the exactly because because we do need each other in some way that doesn't make sense in the collective big. But yeah, if we don't have the small, I mean. I don't think one's yeah. greater than the other, but you you have to have both. Right. I, I do agree. I, I didn't I so admired Rabbi Stephen Foster. His sermons were the best. No, nobody nothing to take away from all the other wonderful rabbis they went. But Temple Emmanuel has four like I, I or three or four thousand families. I mean, it's just a huge just feels like this huge institution. Yeah. And B'nai Havaraz is in this little ex strip mall you know, with 25 people on a Saturday morning and then these, these hover road of small groups. And I just realized that that was just better for me. And I also think, I mean, I've seen sociologists, anthropologists say, once you get beyond 150 people, it's hard for people to begin to identify with others as in a communitarian kind of way. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you, yes, Pam, so much you for your so time. Much. This was awesome. It's always great to have you here. It won't it's be the last time. Great to talk time. to you. I hope so. Because I hope not. Wh- which we yeah. have not said on this podcast, we are both San Antonio Spurs fanatics. Yeah, we are. And Go Spurs. Because of that, ancestry. and they're making a comeback. Uh, they're they're they they're they're up in their game. The the Western Conference is really tough this year. It is. If they were in the Eastern Conference, oh, piece of cake, piece of cake. Yeah, completely. Yeah. It's true. We're getting eye rolls and sort of laughy laughs over here. If you follow the NBA, you would know this to be true. You would understand. And those who are listening right now are like, 90% have no idea what we're talking about. (laughs) And the other 10% are like, yeah, Ryan, Pam, go NBA. Okay. Thanks again for listening. Yes. And if you you like this episode, share it on the line. Yeah. Or come visit any of Brew Theology's meetings. I'm a fan. We we have multiple chapters across the country. And... um, Give it a listen, give it a share, special and place. Keep brewing. Sounds good. All right, right. peace. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.